another episode of Money for Nothing. I'm Sam Backer. Saxon Baird is out this week, but we have what is in every way an improvement. We have Jesse Olson on the show this episode. Um, Jesse's a really good friend and has been in, I think, every single position in the music industry, give or take, over the last decade. She is my go-to, am I understanding this right person, and has been (laughs) for about a decade. And so we're just really excited to have her on to talk about, we're going to be talking some live streaming, we're going to be talking some artist activism, we're going to be talking some what the hell just happened (laughs) over the past year to the music industry, and we're going to be talking about what might happen in 2021 as we kind of give you guys a uh, a money for nothing end of the year <laughs> extremely loose new year special so jesse welcome to money for nothing hey hey thanks for having me i'm excited to uh dig into the existential crisis that is the music industry right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah um cool so do you think you can j- just to like situate um I'm going to forget things that you've done. Uh, You're a, you've been a, you're a brilliant musician yourself. You've worked for Lincoln Center. Yep. I've worked uh, for arts, nonprofits, small and large, um, places like Lincoln Center, Brick Arts, who produce Celebrate Brooklyn here in New York. I've been a tour manager, um, a manager of DJs and Afrobeat bands, I'm sure other stuff. Oh, I uh, used to produce shows for a living, live shows in venues where people would come together and and touch each other and breathe the same air. Imagine that. And like sometimes smooch. It was great. Like a lot um, of touching and breathing. Yes. In my memory. Um, produced concerts for a, a long time with uh, a lot of really amazing, powerful women. Shout outs to Melody Robbie and Anneluz Vizartea and Paula Abreu. We've thrown some good parties over the years um and now i work for a company called big room we are a concert live streaming startup um i've been there for a little over a year full time um but i've been advising them for a little bit longer than that it's wild uh we we started out all of this um just like trying to convince music venues that live streaming was the future had no idea what was what was looming in the in our actual future um so it's been a a wild ride to say the least um, and then the resistance revival chorus oh yeah ha huh! and i sing in the resistance revival chorus which is something I, I miss so much. It's been a while, especially now that it's cold. It's hard to gather large groups of people to sing in general um, right now. And we had been making it work outside, but it's real cold these days and there's lots of snow on the f- on the ground. So, but yes, I sing with the Resistance Revival Chorus, which is a collective of over 70 women and non-binary singers and activists. Um, we sing protest music in the lineage of um, Sweet Honey and the Rock and the Snick Singers and lots of other incredible um, musical groups, the Freedom Singers. And we just did a couple of really fun live stream performances with Fleet Foxes. One aired on the, the whatever this version of the, the Late Show with Stephen Colbert is right now, where it's all done like from people's homes. Um, which was very cool. And then we did another another segment with him, with Robin from Fleet Foxes that was streamed on Noon Chorus, 
uh, this week. So, as you can tell, Jesse is, in fact, ludicrously <laughs> qualified to talk about what we're going to be talking today. <laughs> uh, full disclosure, Jesse and I have been uh, friends and collaborators for many years. We produced a uh, hour-long radio uh, documentary about bounce music in New Orleans, uh, which we can put in the program yeah, we notes. Um, we tracked down Sissy Nobby successfully, <laughs> which was a, an adventure in itself. Um, okay, so um, like you said, you got started with live streaming a year ago. So that's right before everything in the world blew up. <laughs> and I'm wondering just to start this discussion, because um, for, for anyone who's been living under like a digital rock Live streaming has been the fundamental way or one of the fundamental new avenues for artistic production that have come out of this, that over the last decade and change, the profit center of maybe not the music industry, as we've discussed, but certainly the profit center for artists has shifted from record sales, because haha, there aren't record sales, to live shows. And so increasingly artists have relied on live shows to make money and that's not just superstars like Beyonce but this kind of it's everybody um, in a whole variety of ways and clearly that ended when you couldn't be in a room with other people so live streaming has exploded to replace it so as we kind of tell that story and think through what that means I'm wondering if you could start by just giving a little bit of a description of like what was live streaming? Where was it at? Because I don't even remember. <laughs> like, where was it at before COVID-19? Okay, yes. Uh, remembering things beyond, like, two hours ago in COVID times is definitely an adventure. Uh, before COVID, you were seeing a lot of venues in the in the live music space start to figure out how to record shows not just audio recording, also doing video recording. Some venues were starting to have like an in-house video person then then would sell the video post-show back to the artists or it would become a part of the deal that's negotiated. Some venues were actively posting those shows online. Some artists were starting to dabble in live streaming either from home or from from a, like a live show. You were definitely seeing like the influence of the Tiny Desk series and Bob Boylan and like how to, you know, have these kind of additional touch points to your fans, especially since like everyone is communicating via social media a lot. So you were seeing a lot of artists and music venues starting to, but mostly a lot of artists, individual artists using live streaming and streaming like uh, previously recorded shows as a way to just like, as like a marketing tool, really, um, to put on social media. But you weren't really seeing monetization of those videos other than in the jam band world, which has been doing this for a really long time. Um, companies like Nugs, which are built entirely so that jam band heads can watch, you know, their favorite Grateful Dead shows or fish shows or, you know, whatever. I'm not too well-versed in the jam scene. But uh, that was kind of the only lane where monetization was happening in, like, jam, but also in um, classical music. Like, the Met was live broadcasting operas 
um, and airing them on TV and in movie theaters. But it was really just like people were just kind of dipping their toes in. That's really interesting. And it's interesting to see those two, like, in some ways, like, could not be more different. I mean, except in the dedication to the live show. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and maybe that... that, it, that and obsessive it, fandom. Like, people who are real opera heads, like, want to see the whole season at the Met, you know? Um, but they can't necessarily... They can't always afford it. So this was, like, a great way for the Met to pull in younger audiences to be more accessible for their much older audiences. The anecdote I always give is like my grandfather, who used to live in New York, moved to Connecticut. And when he moved to Connecticut, it was harder for him to get into the city and would, you know, call me and say, oh, I'm on my way to the Met. But he was actually like going to an AMC movie theater in Ridgefield, Connecticut, you know. Um, So it was it was a great way for him who was like he was a diehard opera fan and he was able to still have a very like intimate experience with the performance but not schlep all the way into the city yeah it's just so it's it's interesting because i feel like it's also the way that that monetization functions for those two is kind of the opposite in that correct me if i'm wrong Mm -hmm. but like you said uh opera it's going to be cheaper whereas for the jam band world kind of post Grateful Dead, the assumption is that you can always get a live recording of the show, but that this is sort of like a, maybe you can get a higher quality audio, you know, a board feed right afterwards. And that for a little extra, you get a video of the show too, right? It's like an add on to the experience. Yeah. The, the jam world, especially, you know, the way Nugs has worked and the way Fish has been doing this with their shows for years and years and years where you can buy a plane ticket to the show or you can buy a ticket plus for a, for less money than a ticket, obviously, uh, access to a recording of the show like immediately after it's done. But you can also you always were always also able to um, get just the live stream ticket, too, um, which is significantly cheaper. OK, so we've got kind of. You know, in February of 2020, we've got um, kind of post Facebook Live <laughs> a little bit. People realizing that it's possible to do live streams of concerts as promotion. And like you said, Tiny Desk Concerts is one of these. Um, you're kind of getting live, live streaming the promotional space for the mainstream. You've got these kind of two distinct worlds of monetized live stream. Mm-hmm. And then in what, mid March? everything stops mid-march everything stops but also the thing that i am always reminding myself and find myself talking about a lot is like the live music industry in a lot of ways is still like venues are still reeling from like having to switch from paper tickets to digital tickets (laughs) that process took a really long time so this is not necessarily an industry that adapts to tech new technology quickly. And this time, this COVID time was like really forced the industry to adapt and adapt fast. Um, and it was, it was amazing to watch and to be a part of this like very rapid switch where like February and like 
you know, the early parts of 2020, I was literally going like door to door to music venues to be like, hi, you want to talk about live streaming? It's great for your venue. And people were like, no, we are already like dealing with like Eventbrite and ticketing companies and it's too much and I don't know how to deal with this. Please leave me alone. And then like huge switch in March of like, okay, so now we have to figure out we're not allowed to have people in here, but maybe we can have bands, but we're waiting to find out from the city if we're allowed to have bands in the room. What does that look like if we can only have the artists in the room? How do we make money? What resources do we need? And there was this huge um, kind of technology gap that had to be bridged very, very quickly. And so there's a couple of companies like you guys, um, and then kind of other ones whose, whose names I don't necessarily know, um, and kind of rush, try to rush into this void along with kind of the, uh, I'd say like expanded versions of the social media networks. Like people are like, maybe I can just Instagram live the whole set. Right. And so you have people who like quickly used Instagram live, which Instagram live, you can only... There's a couple ways to go around it, but in general, you can only uh, record directly from your phone. You can only like distribute it directly from a phone or an, an iPad, which makes things simpler, but also way more complicated, <laughs> um, especially if you want to do like a really high quality Instagram live live. That's a new a new new to me phrase that I learned over the last year, which is uh, going live streaming or going live 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 streaming doesn't necessarily have to be a live show it can be something pre-recorded that you then air quote unquote live streamed but then live live is like you know something that is you're actually doing it live and streaming it live at the same time and i realize that sometimes i say that phrase and don't explain what it is and people think i'm crazy (laughs) which they're right but yeah there was this gap right at the beginning of COVID where artists had basically already figured out how to live stream because they were like, you know, fuck it. I'm in my house. I'll put up my phone. I'll sit in my living room. I'll play guitar. I'll, you know, put my phone up on the top of the piano and I will play and it will be what it will be. And this is how I will connect with my fans and you know, figure out maybe I'll drop my Venmo or a cash app of some kind. And that is a like, quick and dirty way for me to make money. And a lot of people were actually using it, especially bigger artists and, and smaller, smaller acts too, using that kind of platform they had and that reach they had to raise money for causes. And that was what it was for a really long time. Venues that were starting to figure out how to do live streams were also always doing fundraisers and trying to support the BLM movement and trying to support their fellow venues and restaurants and workers. And after a while, that kind of more quick and dirty casual streaming setup, I think one, there was definitely audience fatigue I definitely was like, if I have one more notification about some guy sitting in his jammies playing the acoustic guitar, asking me to donate to something, um, I'm out. (laughs) Um, So I think there is definitely audience fatigue. And also just like, it's so much extra work as a performer to 
also have to be your like your tech and learn all this video mumbo jumbo and then there was also a, a huge influx of platforms that were trying to cater to these performances that sprung up seemingly out of nowhere a lot of them already existed and were doing other things and then shifted gears but all of a sudden there became this like industry around it and it was not just sitting at home on your phone or your laptop i mean one of the one of the the, the complicated and interesting things i think about live streaming is that right now where the industry's at it seems like it, it's the task of like you said, modernization, of getting people to pay for things that maybe not the same things, but like similar types of things had traditionally been free or had previously been free. Like if you asked me in um, December Mm -hmm. of 2019, like would I ever consider paying money for a live stream? I would say no, probably probably no and now the answer is probably yes and I, I do think it's interesting that like donations to causes were the thing that kind of i think we're really critical in right. bridging that gap and introducing that idea that this artistic labor has value and like yeah you need to pay for it yeah and the other thing that i think a lot of people on the consuming and don't realize is that producing a video that looks good is expensive unless you're a person who like worked in the film industry (laughs) or the television industry before this i worked for a public television station before i started working for big room and that was when i first started realizing like oh my gosh these cameras that you use are so expensive even just to rent like this equipment is incredibly expensive and there's a huge learning curve on how to use a lot of it to like create something that is highly produced that would maybe convince the audience outright to spend money on to buy a ticket for. And so there's this very exciting range of quality that has come out that kind of reminds me of like, you know, DIY versus like the spectrum of a DIY venue up to like a a big fancy performance center where you have people that are doing super weird, super cool stuff on a shoestring budget with like phones and laptops and GoPros and whatever and like putting it out into the world. And then you have people doing like, you know, huge productions that are thousands and thousands of dollars with film crews and all sorts of equipment. And it's it's been very cool to see that emerge and change and shift over the last many months. And I think a lot of music venues, especially the ones that I work with, what Big Room does is we, we create production software that allows you to do a lot of the stuff with fewer people in the room and still have like a multi-camera cool thing. Um, So a lot of the venues I'm talking to are trying to find where they fit on that spectrum. Like, are they a like tape a GoPro to the side of the wall and 
call it a day <laughs> venue or are they, you know, do they have the budget, the audience, the ability to invest in creating kind of uh, an infrastructure for more polished productions, you know? And then on top of all of that is the layer of like, okay, so how do you sell it? And that's where the real chaos is. <laughs> so yeah, so let's dive into that chaos because it it, it it's that's it's the that's a really fascinating yes. area, clearly for money for nothing. That's like our sweet spot of like so if we're thinking about in stages, it seems like that early chaotic stage is like March through May early June I mean depends in some places that early chaotic stage is still happening so then people start to monetize like in a real way and I'm wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about that because for me I think the, the, the ones that I had heard about and read about were often kind of more major acts um doing either either enormous acts like BTS doing massive festivals for fairly low dollar values or medium size slash cult acts offering um really really like intimate performances um in ways that for, for fair fair bits of money sometimes in ways that like no fan would normally get that kind of access yeah try to i also am trying to think of like what are the like actual like shows and moments that stand out i personally worked on a post malone stream with youtube that was a fundraiser that raised a ton of money and was just like post malone doing a bunch of nirvana covers in his house and that got a lot of buzz and i think was one of the first times that everyone was like oh okay like this can like not look like a telethon feel like a real show feel really intimate and also make revenue i think each platform like if we're thinking about this not from an artist standpoint from an but from a platform standpoint each platform has their own like big success moments um so you think about like a platform like stage it which uh started out it was uh founded by one of the brothers from the band evan and jaren shout out to crazy for this girl which i will now have stuck in my head for the rest of the day so they've been around forever their whole thing is like easy distribution of live streams for art artists who are like doing videos very like DIY scrappy at home, but they had a whole like ticketing model. You could have like fans subscribe to your platform, that kind of thing. They've got their successes um, that were like their big COVID shows that were a turning point for them. You've got um, platforms like Veeps, which also were started by the brothers from Good Charlotte. Like there, there's a lot of like people who were in popular bands in the early aughts who are now <laughs> doing live streaming, which is rad. Um, and like, so their platform Veeps, which was- Benji and Joel. Yeah, Benji and Joel. They're great. <laughs> um, they know the lifestyle. Now. They know they're, they're amazing. So like they, Veeps was originally about like VIP interactions, like, you know, one-on-one -on -one, like group chats with your favorite artists. And they were like, oh, okay, we're doing shows now. We know how to do shows. Um, and we're pivoted to like monetizing concerts. Um, you see platforms come up like Maestro and, and Noon Chorus that allow you to like 
completely customize the way you sell tickets and also sell merch and do all sorts of stuff. And those platforms, you started really seeing them hit the ground running midsummer, really, like early midsummer. And that's where you started to see like huge name acts say, like, I'm taking my my show on tour. And the tour is virtual. And because those platforms are kind of available to anybody, you'd see like huge name acts on these platforms, but also smaller acts and see people making kind of a range of money at the same ticket price. Like everyone's selling tickets for like 15, 20 bucks and, and making it happen. It's really interesting because I feel like um, when you talk about that diversity of experiences that the live streaming platforms are offering as this space gets figured out, like arguably, arguably many popular musicians like, um, like Cardi, right? Cardi has arguably been live streaming everything for three years, four years, something like that. Like, modern music is deeply like connected to internet accessibility live performances weren't necessarily always connected around internet accessibility but parts of the music industry were so in some ways this is like an expansion of a dynamic and an acceleration of a dynamic you know this this line that COVID is is an accelerator of trends not as much a creator of trends and so what's really interesting is, is the ways in which it seems like some of these are allowing the commodification of like, it's not ancillary to the music, but it's like kinds of experiences that are not just what we what we typically think of as the music part of the music. It's not the strumming of the guitar. It's like, does this allow you to do fan interactions differently? Does this allow the backstage to function differently? Does this like allow a, a, a diversity of the kind of like VIP experiences that, that my understanding of the, the festival ecosystem is totally built around like VIP rooms and VIP yep. access as, as a major profit driver. Yeah, I think it also, COVID did an interesting thing where it put a lot of the control over those experiences and that monetization back in the hands of the artist. Because record labels were a little bit slow to get onto like anything that's got a lot of bureaucracy is going to take a little bit more time to get onto a new trend like this, especially one that involves like figuring out payroll tax and like, and, and figuring out like how to, you know, pay for, you know, a production and then pay for its distribution, whatever. Um, so it really put a lot of power back in the hands of artists. And I'm still finding record labels that I've been talking to at the beginning of all of this who were like, oh, we don't know how to, you know, if we should spend money on helping get our artists like ready to make video. Uh, We don't know how we feel about that. We don't know if we have a deal with a, a live stream platform yet. They're now starting to reach out and go, so our artists that have been live streaming this whole time from their phones and making money, would now like to, you know, up their game or or are now it we're now interested in like figuring out how to support them because we've seen after watching this whole summer that this works. And so at, or when it first started, record labels and management companies were like interested in supporting live streaming 
for their really big acts that were like, duh, of course, Ariana Grande's live stream is going to, you know, make a bunch of money. Her fans love her, whatever. But will your like lower middle range artists make money was like a big question. And I think now it's less of a question. Now it's like, yes, this is a thing that artists can make money doing. It's also very much a thing that is not going away. I think a lot of folks in the industry thought that this would just be a trend or a fad or a passing thing. But you could tell already, even before COVID, that live performance was getting more digital. You could tell that just by going to a show and looking at the audience and looking at everyone looking down on their phones while the artist was performing on stage. So no, so that's that's really yeah. interesting. So I'm wondering if um, thinking about it, because I, I completely buy that, that this is not going away. I wonder, like, if you'd care to put on your, your future hat and think a little bit like, yeah, it is a year from now. It's December 2021. You know, forget forget that. It's 2022. It's May 2022. Yeah, like, we're getting ready for festival season. 2022. We're getting ready for festival. Yeah, this first summer festival season. Yeah. Since COVID. You know, the, the champagne is popping. The cocaine <laughs> is flowing. It's a wild time. Rent, You know, rents are still down because it's my fantasy and no one can take this from me. <laughs> um, we're all like a little bit chubby and that's okay. <laughs> It makes us more aerodynamic. <laughs> okay, so what does this look like? Like, what is that? Can you explain how that summer looks like to me? And and again, this is a, a, a good place to point out that, like, some of this is not that different. I've never been to Lollapalooza. Not Lollapalooza. I've never been to, um, uh, what's the one? The West Coast Bonnaroo? one? Bonnaroo? No, been to Bonnaroo. Uh, <laughs> I was supposed to play Bonnaroo this year. Oh, yeah, you were. That's a bar. Yep. <laughs> um, so summer 2022, I'm Coachella. supposed to be playing. Uh, oh, Coachella. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Great. I, it just that I've seen. I've never been to Coachella, but I've seen Coachella live streams both as um, just sort of like live stream at a bar mm-hmm. that is showing the whole festival and like found someone who had an HBO subscription so that I could stream Coachella. Right. Um, like as like a concert experience, like turned off all the lights, bought champagne, yeah. did a thing. Borrowed Jesse's um, HBO subscription. <laughs> <laughs> did I borrow yours? I don't know, Was it, it yours? Been, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's pretty close. That's pretty close to pre-pandemic yeah. paying. Someone paid yeah. for it. <laughs> so I mean, and this is just you know to, to point out the, the trends that carry mm-hmm. through. But okay, so with that in the background, like, what's it look like? I think a couple of things. I think right now there are so many platforms on the market and it is causing people to like panic the same way when ticketing like live ticketing companies were everywhere and there was a million different options and they all had slightly different plans and they all seemed a little scammy. Right now that's what live stream platforms that world looks like. I think over the next year like 2021 there is going to be the great platform culling that um like someone's going to someone or someone's are going to win this race the same way we had um 
you know, lots of different social media platforms and like Facebook and Instagram one. Shout out to Live Journal. Oh, RIP Live Journal. I loved Live Journal so much. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think 2021, we're going to see a big shift in the number of uh, live streaming platforms that exist. We're going to see a big shift in the offerings right now most of these platforms offer kind of the same thing with some various customizations i think we're going to see a kind of evening of that playing field i also think like a lot of the big platforms the big social media platforms the facebook's the instagram's the youtube's the twitter's are going to come out with similar services to these live stream specific platforms and that's going to shift how we consume. And I think it's going to make it way easier for people to pay for these shows. Right now, it's like you have to make an account on an app, on a platform for one artist. And then another another one of your favorite artists might be streaming to another platform. you got to make another account. Like, oh, what a pain in the butt. I think that's going to be much more simplified. I also think you're going to see, like, Amazon, Netflix... HBO all also throw their hat in the ring to get into this game, which is going to, like I said, make it way easier from the audience end to purchase a live stream. But it's also going to shift who has the power there. It's going to be less about the artist having full control over this and more about, you know, the machine around the artist and the big companies um, getting a slice. Um so that is like my biggest prediction for for the summer of 2022 when we're all going to be like cute and chubby and going to concert festivals again. So so we got more fewer options, probably more integrated. Mm-hmm. It's going to be more standardized the same way there's kind of like Eventbrite and Ticketmaster and they both already have my credit right. card. And t- Ticketmaster is a big one you didn't mention. Oh, yeah. They're, the ticketing platforms will also, and a lot of them already have, the ticketing platforms will also have full integrations um, for live streaming. Most of them are already actively doing that and actively planning to do, once we can do in-person tickets again, like package deals a la uh, Nugs and, and the, the jam bands, because that's that's kind of a really easy way to integrate live streaming. Yeah. I mean, one thing that not, not to get too deep into this prediction rabbit hole. I mean, one thing that's interesting though, is just like given the political environment around technology that is changing rapidly. And that's something we're, we're going to talk about more in, in a minute. Like if, if I'm Facebook or, Insta, you know, if I'm Facebook, I'm being wary about just brutally crushing potential thriving social media yeah. platforms in public. Like, I think the move that they did when they just did Snapchat really dirty um, with Instagram, I don't know if they will risk that in the future. They might, but, like, people are watching the behavior of these platforms in a way that they weren't yeah. two years ago, even. Yeah, and and maybe it won't be Facebook, but I think platforms that are already geared towards video so like your youtubes your vimeos those platforms 
are definitely going to figure out monetization and make it really easy um, to so, do that. So you've kind of describing it from the, the industry perspective. I, I'm also wondering if you, if you could, because mm-hmm. I'm just struggling to imagine a little bit like, what is my, like, like from a social perspective, from a fan perspective, like, right. What's my summer, you know, like are, I'm, I'm going to go to some shows and then stay home and live stream other. I mean, I'm, I'm just really interested to hear you, 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 you talk a little bit about how that plays out, especially if more and more of these live streams are, you know, I could pay $25 for a show or what, pay $15 for a live stream. It's money either way. It's money either way. But I think the thing that the industry is betting on is that nobody knows how just like traumatized the human population is going to be after spending a year, maybe more away from each other. And there's a very strong chance that this time that we've gone through is going to cause some people to not really be so interested in going into large crowds. Um, So there's that. There's also this thing that I think is really interesting and is something that like I kind of kind of half jokingly thought like, oh, maybe this will be what happens and then have found myself doing it, which is like live streams at a lower price point, even live streams at a higher price point. I found myself baking Christmas cookies the other day while watching a live stream show in my kitchen. And instead of like putting on the radio or playing a record like I normally would, I opened up my laptop and had, you know, a live stream going and it was beautiful and lovely. And then I like checked Twitter and people were posting about it and like people were posting stuff on Instagram about it. And it was like a beautiful way to like me as a person who in normal times would prefer to be out (laughs) at a show or at a club over basically anything else. Um, Maybe except for like cooking dinner. But even that I'm like, I'd rather be at a show. You know, this listeners, I can confirm (laughs) this trying to keep up with Jesse on like a a night when she's like going out and she's well rested. (laughs) It's the most exhausting thing I've ever done. It's like five venues in three boroughs. It's really unfathomable at this point. (laughs) I love going out. Yeah. So like uh, a human being who is maybe entering a time in their life where they're not in their 20s um, and shouldn't be out at the club every night, like live streaming gives you a way to do that. And that is cool. And it gives you another way to like connect with other fans other people who are really into the music scenes that you're into without having to necessarily stop anything else you have to do in your life, like baking Christmas cookies for your friends um, or cooking dinner or, you know, raising kids, if that's the thing you're doing. Um, that was definitely the, a lot of the folks that I knew that were live streaming before COVID or watching, paying for and watching live streams before COVID were people with kids. Um, because 
not everyone is as crazy as my parents were. You can't always bring your kid to the club, to the show, to the gig. No, that's a really that's a really good point. And and I think it kind of gets at a broader question that that's that's fascinating with live streams, which is um, the complexities. And you and you kind of mentioned this before with like live and live live. Um, the complexities mm-hmm. of what makes a live performance, like where that feeling of liveness is, and the ways that yeah. because of technological mediation, that's shifted. Uh, pre-COVID certainly where you know an event can be happening on Twitter and the liveness is in the community of people interacting with it on Twitter or it can be this kind of a distributed or disaggregated liveness where it's like like you're saying about a, a normal show where part of it is happening in the room and part of it is happening on Instagram where everyone is posting their photos and videos and yeah no that totally makes sense that with live streaming it's a way to there is that complicated liveness of part of it is that everyone's on Instagram looking at this live stream and it's happening. And so some, some of, some of the value of a live show can happen in all these other places in other ways now in a way that's really cool, actually. It's, I don't, I have never thought of live streaming as a thing that will ever replace going to a live show. And I don't think most artists think of it that way. I don't I don't really think anyone in the industry is thinking of live streaming as the thing that will replace going to a live show. But it does expand the accessibility in a really cool way. While live streaming is not intended to replace in the long term live performances. Unfortunately, for the past 9 to 10 months it has and when we will be right back to kind of talk about how that's worked out for artists and how the musicians of the united states and of the world have have been doing stay tuned Okay, so we've been talking about live streaming, but in in many ways, kind of the, it's been a lifeline for artists in a truly disastrous year. Um, And and in a year that's, uh, I think, really changed a lot of of musicians and and people um, interested in the music industry, really changed their their perceptions of of what the music industry is and what, what it can do. And, and, how how wrong so many parts of it are i guess so you've also been very active in kind of the uh kind of activist spaces that are trying to figure out um to react to this crisis and and trying to figure out ways to um to work around it yeah um i have been active in a couple of different uh areas since covid hit uh First and foremost, there is the movement for Black Lives that I've always been a part of that has 
always uh, found strength and support from entertainment, the entertainment industry. I think that relationship is uh, in some ways like really formalized that I would love to do a Money for Nothing podcast someday about like the uh, industry of entertainment and influencers in activist spaces, <laughs> but that's not about live streaming. Mm-hmm. But there was also this huge movement for the Save Our Stages bill, which was incredible to watch, watching independent venue owners, uh, people from the industry really have to put on their activist hats and uh, social justice hats for the first time ever. And it's been really amazing to be a witness to that and to be in support of it wherever I can. I helped with Big Room. Um, We were part of the Save Our Stages Festival, which was a big fundraiser um, and really just a way to get out the word using like huge, big name live streams. But it's it's really caused throughout the industry um, people to think about how they are in community with one another. I mean, one of the things that we've talked about um, Save Our Stages previously, and, and while I clearly, I'm fully in support of this bill, right? That, uh, for, you know, I'm fully in support of this bill, which looks like it will cover a large chunk, something like 45% of um, shortfalls for venues, uh, the bill also has elements that are meant to address, and in fact, back address um, complicated um, holes in the way that unemployment insurance was paid out for musicians, many of whom have a mixture of freelance and salaried work, and a lot of times got on insurance based on their salaried work and not their full amount they would have taken in with freelance, which meant that people were getting... Um, unemployment insurance on like just a very small portion of what an income would be it is complicated though i think and it's something we've talked about before Mm -hmm. about the the that artists and venues are not the same thing and how they interact can be um can be complicated yeah especially like in this moment right now where everyone was kind of left to fend for themselves and the government did not step in to keep people <laughs> didn't really step in to do anything. Um, didn't step in to sustain on the individual level, but also didn't step in to sustain any industries other than the biggest ones. Um, but to your point about artists and venues being different in a lot of ways, this crisis did act as a bit of an equalizer. So so you think that for a lot of these venues, the severity of the crisis has actually kind of created um, a heightened sense of the interdependence. Interdependence, but also like venues have independently owned venues, especially have been pushing against like large, massive companies, Live Nation, um, like Ticketmaster, who are trying to kind of take over the market. Uh, for a long time and this moment where they finally were able to like all get in touch with each other and build power together I think is only going to strengthen them in that fight like you saw with um oh what's his name who was trying to buy up (laughs) 
Save Life. Yeah. We're talking about that. Yeah. Oh, that like that kind of failed. Scam. That it, yeah. And because I think in an, in any other situation, had Neva not already existed, more venues might have been interested in something like that. But Neva existed, so it these independently owned venues had each other to lean on and had the uh, Neva Emergency Relief Fund to lean on and were able to kind of see that for what it was. So just to be clear, so we're talking about um, Mark Geiger, Geiger, um, Geiger, who is a influential guy in Lollapalooza's first round in the 90s, has been a kind of worked for major talent. I think he worked for the William Morris Agency had this plan where he was kind of going to start a company called Save Live, where he was going to purchase 51% of the of all of these independent venues and kind of create, like, under the idea that he's saving live music, which seemed to me like buying distressed, the minimum amount of a distressed asset necessary to create a chain. But, you know, who, who am I? Um, but no, yeah, I think you're right that this is like the, the the fact that this wasn't a lobbying organization previously is crazy. Yeah. And I'm excited to see as I know there's a lot of movements for musicians unions that are that are popping up and and finding success. And as, you know, musicians also build their collective power. Can independent venues and musicians continue to like lobby together and support the industry? And how does that ripple out to like the rest of the arts and performing arts? Um, Because these types of movements are happening in all of those areas. Yeah. I mean, so for me, I think one of the thing, one of the things that's been clearest coming out, I think, from an artist's side is that everyone has been complaining about streaming since <laughs> they realized how much of a hit it put into their paychecks. But, I mean, maybe this is a little bit over-optimistic, but I think that the, 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 the societal discussion about the level to which streaming is an unsustainable way for musicians to be producing, to be organizing their careers um, with the Justice of Spotify campaign that we've covered in earlier episodes, and just more generally the the um the hearings in the uk um and in the eu that there is seemingly i think a, a little bit of a the tide seems to have turned a little bit on the fact the sense that this this isn't working and that while things may have been papered over with live touring previously when the kind of the the tide receded it's like this is not a this is yeah. not okay and how these conversations and legal battles that are happening right now around um copyright and uh ownership of um streamed material um and and profit sharing from that how those conversations shake down is going to affect live streaming too because if the if the giants win i think it would be really easy for the live streaming market to follow suit and become a thing that artists and and independent venues don't make much money from but if what i think is going to happen happens and the tide truly does begin to turn this could this could be another step towards bringing like real profit from both like streamed like spotify audio streamed and live streamed like video content um having that be something that 
is a, a viable moneymaker for independent artists. And, 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 I, and I think the, the success of Save Our Stages as a campaign, in a kind of uh, a, in a not super obvious way, gives me more hope for a lot of these things because there's a sense that there has been a societal discussion instantiated in government about the economic and social, but let's be real, economic mm -hmm. importance of the arts and the art spaces as drivers in cities across the United States. Um, and these are the kind of issues that in, you know, this extraordinarily partisan moment it's like the senators from tennessee want live music to don't want the venues to go under just as much as the senators from california and new york and texas tennessee and nashville is one of the the few cities that like immediately put their money where their mouth was and put resources towards their venues focusing in for just a second about kind of the music industry circles i mean one are there any particular conversations in that space that kind of jump out at you one of the ones that i've heard about is a uh, kind of a turn away, you know, turn towards nonprofit venues and nonprofit models um, or cooperative models for how these local scenes should be run and organized. Yeah, I think uh, it would be amazing if that was the way things started to turn. I think there are a lot of, um, there was already kind of a, a slow move toward like community funding of art spaces. Um, you saw like uh there's a, a company called With Friends that was creating kind of like a membership model like you see in nonprofit organizations for music venues, art spaces, community spaces. And that was really taking off and that has continued to take off as venues have needed help during the COVID crisis. So I definitely think we're going to be seeing a lot more rethinking of the old ways even if it's like, even if it's just as like a, a defensive mechanism to prevent, you know, huge buyouts and and takeovers of venues, you know, it, it's it's. Uh, and and I think it's also you know the losses of like um, so many, like so many amazing venues and just the, the sense. I mean, the intensity of the loss gives a sense of what what is there. And even venues only been to a couple times. I mean, like Great Scott in Boston. I only went there once or twice, but like. I was sad when I heard that closed. Yeah, that there's sucks. an incredible amount of loss that I think, like, I haven't even let myself wrap my head around that <laughs> aspect. Um, I feel like the first tour I go on post-COVID is going to be, like, when that all hits of, like, oh, these places that I used to be able to go to, like, don't exist anymore. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on the show. We will you know, we'll check back in with you. I I hope that these like it's been it's been a year, but I hope some good things can come out of it. That's all we can do is uh, just keep working towards the good things. Um, and thank you so much for having me on. Um, and uh, money for nothing. You guys are are really talking about amazing stuff here and, and doing great work. So thank you so much for having me. Oh,